Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Joshua Swamidas. You are most welcome, sir. Great to have me. Uh, sorry, great to thank you for having me. It's great to be here. My all my pleasure. Thank you very much. For those who don't know, um, Joshua is an associate professor in the Laboratory and Genomic Medicine Division at Washington University in St. Louis in the United States. Uh, his research uh, focuses upon using computational methods uh, to solve problems at the intersection of medicine, chemistry, and biology. Truly fascinating. Uh, line of work, if I may say so. Um, he's the author of a recent highly acclaimed book entitled The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. And this will be the, the central subject of, of our discussion today. Now, Joshua is a committed Christian. And as a student, uh, he struggled to reconcile what he was told the Bible said with what he was learning about the origins of the world. He began to research how the Bible's original audience understood Genesis as the first book of the Bible, of course, and how Christian theologians throughout history have varied in their interpretation of the book of Genesis. He came to the conclusion that the Bible itself is not in conflict with science, but with some human interpretations of the Bible. And there's a wonderful quote from um, the book, which we'll come to in a second, which I just want to share before we come to uh, Joshua. Um, and he wrote as follows. The genealogical account does not prove Adam and Eve's existence, but it's impossible to disprove the existence of such a couple 6,000 years ago. Everyone has had a false presupposition that science will tell us about Adam and Eve. It just turns out to be a very reasonable supposition that's false. This really alters the conversation because you can affirm all of evolutionary science, he writes, and that doesn't actually conflict with a literal reading of Genesis. So this really alters the conversation because you can affirm all evolutionary science and that doesn't contradict or conflict with a literal reading of the book of Genesis. And this is to do with Adam and Eve and the creation of Adam and Eve, of course. So, sir, do you want to um, share with us in more detail um, your extraordinary book? And here we have the first slide. Yeah, you know, you say uh, science, uh, but really the, the key crux of the challenge has been evolutionary science, right? So we really mean evolution. And there can be debate about whether or not that's supported by science or not, we're going to leave that aside and for a moment just kind of um, imagine that it's actually true and right. then think about what that means. And I have my book here on the right. It's called mm. The Genealogical Adam and Eve. Uh, but um, I also have a book here called Islam and Evolution. Uh, yes. So uh, I know there's a, a lot of Muslims in this audience and I, and I wanted to talk about that, that partly because Shoei Malik is the author of this. We become friends. He introduced me to you, Paul. Yes. And um, I, reading his book was really helpful um, because it helped clarify uh, quite a bit about how what I was doing in the Christian conversation could be actually really helpful also mm. within mm. the Muslim conversation. Because, you know, I, I didn't really know what the commitments were for Muslims. And um, he makes, I think, a pretty strong argument here. And his book, um, I think, um, is... It, uh, these two books, I'd say, are friends. If you've read one, you might want to read the other. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, or, or maybe read them both. But I'll be talking about that more in just a moment. Uh, let's see here. Let me get over my slides. If I can figure out how to do that. 
All right. Wait a minute. That's not it. Oh, here we go. All right. So I'm here at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, this is in the center of the United States. That's mm -hmm. my office. That's where I'm actually recording right now. Uh, I do work, uh, like, like you mentioned, in using machine learning to, uh, applied to solve problems in chemistry and genetics and so on and so forth. But my book uh, really came out of kind of my personal uh, study and trying to figure out how to make sense of these two stories. I mean, I didn't really know how they fit together. Because on one hand, you have the story in Genesis, which has all humanity arising from, um, you know, historical couple, Adam and Eve in the relatively recent past. And then on the other hand, I heard the story of human evolution. Now, uh, the idea of like animal evolution was never that troubling to me. Maybe it wasn't always believable, but it wasn't ever really a trouble. The real big challenge is this idea of like us kind of deriving from a common ascent with the great apes. Mm -hmm. And these seem like totally two different questions. Um, whoops. I found out also that I'm not the only person who's really worried about that. Um, in the United States, uh, about 100 years ago, there's something called the Scopes trial that happened in, in 1925. There was a big uh, legal fight about whether or not um, whether or not uh, we should be you know, teaching human evolution within public schools here in the United States. Mm. I'm not going to get the details of it so much as to explain specifically what they were fighting about. It's important that it's called the Scopes Monkey Trial. What they were really arguing about was human evolution. They didn't care about the age of the Earth. They didn't care about evolution in the animal kingdom. The real sticking point for them is whether humans really derive from a common ancestor of the great apes. Mm -hmm. So that's really historically where the problem is. I'm pointing out the Scopes trial, but you can see that really, uh, you know, uh, through a lot of dimensions here. I also mentioned too that um, that Shoaib has really kind of navigated between these two questions too in his book. So let me specify a little bit more what I mean by Adam and Eve and evolution. What I mean by Adam and Eve is how most people have understood them over the last, you know, couple thousand years as people who are created without parents. That's what de novo created means or specially created. So they're created by the special miraculous act of God without parents. They were less than 10,000 years ago or so. Mm. On that point, um, that's probably the least important of th these three, but uh, that's how most people have understood it. You could move them more ancient. Um, from an Islamic perspective, there's less of a reason, I think, to yeah. see that they're there's, really recent. There's, there's no dating from an Islamic point of view. It could be, you know, 50,000, 100,000, doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah, but I still think it's fair to say that most um, Islamic readers probably thought they were relatively recent. Um, but it's not like that's a hard and fast commitment, right? And then third, that they were ancestors of everyone alive today. Mm. That, yeah. Those are really, or at least like the, maybe not just today, but also, you know, within our current theological era. So that's, I think, the three things that I think most people really understood Adam and Eve to be. In terms of evolution, um, what I mean is common descent, common ancestors of the great apes. That means if you look at our ancestors and you trace them far enough back, several million years ago in the past, you will find out that, um, that we have ancestors that are also ancestors of chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, and bonobos. Um, that doesn't mean that, that, that chimpanzee, though those great apes are just like humans today, they're obviously very different. But if you mm. go back far enough into the ancient past that, there is, that there's a common ancestor. And I also mean um, that if you look back in the past, we don't see any evidence that there was a dip down in our ancestral population down to a single couple. Mm. Now, these are all disputable points. I'm happy to discuss them in questions and answers. But for now, we're just going to take it, um, 
you know, kind of consider a world in which those two things are true. And we can ask, well, are they in conflict with the first three things? Is evolution in conflict with Adam and Eve? And what I was able to show, uh, and it wasn't merely about interpreting scripture. Actually, what I've explained here isn't at all about interpretation of scripture. It turns out that people had really misunderstood and thought that if evolution is really true, um, scientifically they made this mistake to think, well, then Adam and Eve, as defined over here, can't be true. Right. And so, really, for the last you know 150 years, people have ha felt like they've had to pick and choose, right? Yeah. So you might modify dramatically what you think about Adam and Eve by kind of dropping or uh, uh, one or more of these. You know, some people even getting idea of, rid of the idea of Adam and Eve altogether. And then um, on the evolution side, people will drop, uh, you know, might just drop those issues. They might become very anti-evolutionist because they're committed to what scripture says. Mm -hmm. And if that's not incompatible, if that's incompatible with evolution, well, then we should get rid of evolution. So you could really go either way. Now, the thing that you can find out is that, you know, whether an atheist rejecting Adam and Eve for this reason and the Quran and scripture for those reasons, or if you're a, a Muslim or a Christian rejecting evolution for these reasons, that was just the wrong premise because it turns out all five of these things can be true. Maybe you can still reject evolution, but it has to be for different reasons. Maybe you can still reject the Quran or, or Genesis or the Bible, but it has to be for different reasons. Does that make sense? It does. It's a very uh, uh, intriguing hypothesis. And I'm sure many viewers are wondering how on earth are you going to suggest that you, you can, ha I mean, not have your cake and eat it, but how you can have both uh, both of these at the same time. Now, I I've had a sneak preview, of course, I know what you're going to say, but it is an intriguing hypothesis. And uh, uh, and, and if it's popularly accepted, it will be uh, uh, quite revolutionary, I think, in, you know, in terms of the popular understanding of the issue. Yeah, I think, um, well, what's interesting about this is that in a lot of ways, even people who reject evolution or reject Adam and Eve, whether it be an atheist who rejects Adam and Eve and totally affirms evolution and is a scientist or like a theologian that rejects the truth of evolution but thinks Adam and Eve are real, across that spectrum, there's pretty wide agreement now um, for people who are kind of up to date with where things are that actually these things are not in conflict. <laughs> Interesting. Very interesting. Well, that, that, so that's, you, why, that's why, sorry, just to say, that's why uh, inviting a Christian uh, who's a, a real scientist, uh, if I can put it that way, on, on to blogging theology is that, that, that Muslims and others can learn from the science uh, of this, what the, the truth is, and also even learn from uh, how you wrestled with the, your scriptures and the, the stories in Genesis, because there may be things that we can benefit from as well, not just the science, but the hermeneutical and exegetical um, issues as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's a surprising thing. Like I said, this has to do with um, counterfactual worlds and what's what facts are compatible with one another. So it doesn't mm -hmm. require us to agree that evolution is true or anatomies are true. We're just talking about what's compatible. And I think that, that that's a good type of thinking, right? <laughs> it helps mm -hmm. us think about where real conflict really is and where it's really not. And we're finding out there, there isn't actually conflict between these points. Yeah. So how can that be? Well, let me kind of mark that out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So right here, I have kind of a depiction of um, of Adam and Eve, you can kind of see Adam and Eve uh, at that top point at the very top right here. Um, and then they're kind of spread out across the globe. Um, you know, sometime in the fairly recent past, I'm not really specifying here. And then by 81, um, it's they're really ancestors of everyone. But the key thing I want to point out here is the question mark. Mm. Because a key part of the Genesis tradition, both Christian and Muslim, has been a lot of questions about what's outside the garden. 
What's outside the garden? This, this is, of course, a key phrase. What's, yeah. so we're talking about the Garden of Eden, of course, which is mentioned in Genesis explicitly, which is probably located around Iraq, Mesopotamia, anyway, in the Middle East somewhere. What's outside the garden? What, what is that? This is, this is a key point. Yeah, and, you know, in, in the Genesis text, the garden is really described as like a very small area in mm. a very particular place with landmarks around it. Um, and the consequences of the falls are kicked out of the garden. Um, in some Muslim traditions, too, that's taken even a little bit farther. And they think that Eden wasn't even on Earth. It was like in another heavenly realm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's being described yeah. as, as Adam being, you know, kicked out of the garden, which then kind of, which means kicked out of heaven and then kind of stuck on Earth, which then raises the question, but before the garden then, what was going on on Earth? Okay. Right? Or before uh, before the fall, what was going on on Earth, and 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 so that's been a question mark. And people thought about a ton of different things mm. about what's going on there. They filled it in a, in, a, in a bazillion different ways. I mean, that's been one of the more interesting parts of it because Scripture doesn't actually tell us, and so it's kind of been an open point of speculation. Now, one way to read it is to kind of erase the question mark, and I, I, some people can do this. I mean. On a on one level, it's consistent with Genesis. You can do that, but it's uh, it's hard to say that that's the only way to read it. What I'm saying is, like, let's take that question mark and just suppose that maybe if evolution is true, that what's happening is that science is just kind of filling in and telling us answer to this mystery. It's telling us that well, what had happened is that God had created people outside the garden, mm. and then those people interbred with Adam and Eve's descendants. Uh, when they fell, and uh, so we descend both from Adam and Eve and these people outside the garden, and uh, and the story that we're told in Genesis and that most readers, like I said, have really held is actually true. It's just we've wondered about people outside the garden, and now we know that there were, and that's really the only way that evolution uh, really challenges the Genesis account, which is to say it doesn't really challenge it at all. Does that make right. sense? It does. I mean, this whole idea of people outside the garden, we'll come to that in a minute, when we're particularly the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, because there's there's very good reasons for you raising this whole question, of course. It's not something you made up. This is there in the Bible. It's not there in the Quran, though, but this is not about the Quran, uh, this this particular uh, program, um, although I will later on make reference perhaps to a certain a, a Muslim writer who's written very briefly about this, uh, not not uh, Dr. Schwab, someone else. But um, I, I just want to really, really look into is that a David Jalalo? He's a, yep. anyways, never mind. <laughs> well, you're, you're right. There are, Dr. David Jalalo is, yes. Sorry, I, yeah. Um, um, but the, the, the person I'm going to be quoting, Guy Eaton, um, is writing for a popular audience. I just wanted to mention. Oh, great. Um, but um, you, you, the point about outside of the garden, uh, the, the, the Quran, uh, sorry, the Bible states there are people outside of Eden. This, these are before or during uh, and after the time of Adam and Eve. And, and I know you're going to be focusing on this. This is a fascinating insight. Yeah, and this idea of people outside of the garden, it's it's important. I mean, some people will object and say, the only reason why you're doing this is because of evolution. And, and that turns out to be a, a claim we can actually test with evidence. We can actually mm -hmm. see that long before evolution came along, people were wondering about this. Oh, indeed. Well, because they're so, in the text, it's there in the Bible, not, it's, not, it's not made it's, up. Yeah, it's the actual text itself that kind of gets people wondering about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's other things that have come up. Um, I mean, even, you know, from before Christ arose, there's like the Book of Enoch, where people are wondering about this sort of stuff. In the Islamic tradition, too, uh, there's a lot of discussion of jinn, and the mm. idea that jinn might be interbreeding with Adam and Eve's descendants, too, right? And so uh, there's, there is kind of this 
really deep tradition of people wondering about other beings out there that God made that are still kind of mixing with Adam and Eve's, Adam and Eve's descendants. Yep. No one's really ever considered them heretical. Sometimes they're a bit fantastical. You might think it's true or not true, but um, but they're not actually in conflict with these religions. They're just kind of rising all the time in many different ways. And I'm saying, well, kind of aligned with that tradition, with that history, maybe uh, maybe evolution is just filling us in with what uh, with a real part of what actually happened in our story. That wasn't the most important part for the religious story, but it's the scientific story, and these things fit together in this way. Okay. Very interesting. So um, now most of the discussion has been, I mean, I talked about ancestor and one of the big questions that really has to come to the table though, to really make sense of this is whether or not we mean genealogical ancestors or genetic. Right. Um, and most people didn't recognize this. They thought genealogical ancestry is the same thing as genetic. Uh, they're not. Genetic is a really weird way of inheriting DNA uh, we can talk about that more in a moment, and we will. But genealogical ancestry is something that, even though it's a big word, is actually very ordinary and um, you know even non-scientific. It's just a basic way of understanding how we arise from parents, right? And our parents arise from parents too. And when we talk about you know I have an ancestor, I mean that there's like a chain of physical descent that connects me from that to, for me to them, right? Or if I talk mm -hmm. about my descendants, I'm talking about that there's going to be you know, there's a people that have a chain of physical descent that connect back up to me, right? right? It's not the same thing as genetic. People generally thought they're the same, but they're not. And this is a diagram that really kind of has been helpful for kind of explaining that. So right. you can imagine yourself right there in the center as a circle, and you have 100% of your DNA. That's why kind of according to this legend here, um, it's black, okay? Mm -hmm. Then you have two parents above you, a mother and a father. And there, you get about 50% of your DNA from each one of them. And so that's why it's about 50% gray there. You got that? Right, yeah, I'm with you. And then um, there's your grandparents, and there's four of them, and you get about 25% of your DNA. And then, um, then your great-grandparents, there's eight of them. And you'll notice that it's not exactly the same uniform color. That's because you inherit your DNA in chunks, and there's it's not exactly. So there's a little bit of variation, all right? And you keep on going back. And then, um, you know, it's doubling the number of ancestors you have as you go back um, mm -hmm. in this range, right? Yeah, yeah. By about uh, about six generations back, about five generations back, that's maybe about 150 years or so, we start to see these dark green ones pop up. Now, those are ones that I labeled here, down here, that actually give you 0% DNA, and they're genetic ghosts. So they're actually your ancestors, but you didn't get any DNA from them. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. And there's a few of them at 150 years ago, but if you go back 300 years, um, so that's about uh, that's about 10 generations back. I mean, this is kind of crazy. It's not intuitive. It turns out this is not an exception. It turns out more than 50% of your ancestors give you no DNA. Isn't that wild? <laughs> it is. It is. And so that's the thing. And so then you get down to it. Does it matter um, from a theological point of view if you got DNA or not? Well, theologians have not really known about DNA until very recently that when they talked about ancestry, when scriptural texts talk about ancestry, they're not really talking about, um, they're not talking about genetics, but they might be talking about ancestry, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the beginning, awesome. of, the beginning of Luke's gospel, you get the genealogy of Jesus going back to Abraham in one case, back to Adam in another case. So I, I know this, the genealogy has gaps in it, but at least the principle is there of, you know, parents having parents having parents and so on. Yeah, it's an ordinary, it doesn't take modern science to understand it. 
right? Mm -hmm. That's how we know uh, that the genetic genetics isn't really what they were talking about at all, right? No, yeah, of course. And then we also know that they're not trying to say that Adam and Eve's lineage was just hermetically sealed, never interbred with others. Um, you see them wondering about that all the time in the distant past, right? All right. So the other thing we can look at is how quickly does this take? It turns out that gen genetic ancestors are pretty ancient. So if you're thinking about mitochondrial Eve or Y chromosome Adam, which have nothing to do with Adam and Eve, they're going to be over 100,000 years ago in the past. Really? Okay. But that's genetic common ancestors. We don't actually care about that right now. What we're saying is as important as the genealogical common ancestors. Mm -hmm. And they rise really, really recently, and they rise, rise all over the place. So, you know, our best estimates from science, and I worked this out in detail um, in both peer-reviewed papers, uh, which ended up being my book as well, too, that, you know, if we care about everyone in our current theological era, which as a Christian, I'm saying, you know, from 1 AD on, but, you know, uh, you can think through when you want to what you want to put those dates from a Muslim perspective. Really, um, just about everyone, almost everyone across the globe, at six thousand years ago, is really an ancestor of everyone. <laughs> so, sorry, just to ask an idiot's question, genealogically speaking, obviously not genetically, because there's a distinction you're making between genealogical ancestry and genetic ancestry. Genealogically speaking, how do you know that there were universals arise about six thousand years ago? How, how did you calculate that? Well, I don't quite when you it. make estimates, right? So, um, so a, an analogy might be like, you know, I know I have um, parents, and I know when they lived and died. I mean, I, I can get their birth certificates. I can talk to my mom about it. My pa father passed away, right? I guess I don't know when my mom's going to die, but I can actually estimate when, right? Mm -hmm. um, my grandparents. Um, well, I mean, I know my grandparents on my mother's side. I don't really know them on my father's side, but I have pictures. I know who they are, right? Yeah, I know that had them. I don't know um, their uh, when they were born and when they died off the top of my head, but I could probably talk to my parents and family and figure that out, right? Yeah. Now, what about my great grandparents? Well, I don't have any pictures of them. No. I don't know when they lived, but I'm a hundred percent certain that they existed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, what about my great 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 grandparents? Right. I don't have any records. I mean, they're in India at this point, and I don't think they were keeping records. I I, I don't know. I'm not going to be able to produce very much direct evidence that they exist, but is it really unreasonable for me to be 100% certain that they're real people that existed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Not only that, I can estimate when they lived. <laughs> Yeah, you know, based on estimates, right? Based on you know about how long uh, people yep. were having generation times, and I might be off a little bit, but that's about I can get a pretty good estimate of when they live. And um, that's not an evidence-free; it's completely rational, and it would be kind of absurd to think something wildly different. Like I wouldn't think that my great-great grandparents lived a thousand years ago. That doesn't make any sense. It would be a lot more recent, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's some, some sort of competition and modeling going on that we use to kind of get those estimates. That's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. It's the same sort of reasoning that we can get used to get to. Uh, you can we can use to get to figure out when uni universal ancestors arise. It's a lot more complicated. So what we do is simulations. We simulate um, a large population of people covering the entire globe and ask how long does it take for a person to become a universal ancestor. Does that make sense? I see. Right. Okay. That's a slightly different answer than I was expecting. Yeah. That that that's fine. So you're you're saying all of the uh, people alive today, the human race are actually can trace their ancestors this is genealogy of course back to 
two people 6,000 years ago? Are we saying? Are yeah, we two people, but there would they would have been interbreeding with others, right? So really, there's a large population. There's around 50 million people across the globe 6,000 uh, 6, years ago, okay? Yeah, oh, gosh, you know that many. All right, okay. So if there's 50 million people across the globe then, obviously we don't mean that there's just two people. It turns out that really what's going on is at that point, everyone across the globe that leaves you know, descendants uh, is actually an ancestor of everyone. Right, okay. No, I understand what you mean now. Okay, and, and that dates back to 6,000 years, okay. Yeah, about 6,000. I mean, so I get into a lot of details on the caveats of this and, yeah. and how those numbers are derived and, you know, and it's 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 pretty clear. I mean, now there might be some debate about whether it should be really six thousand or eight thousand years ago. From a Muslim perspective, these dates shouldn't really matter <coughs> too much. Yeah, yeah. Even from like a young Earth creationist, mm. um, a Christian point of view, mm -hmm. um, even young Earth creationists are usually pretty comfortable having Adam and Eve as ancient as like eight thousand years ago or ten thousand years ago. That's all pretty recent. Right. This seems to coincide with the advent of what we would call civilization, recorded history, I suppose, in a sense. You know, yeah, I, I think that there's something important there. Um, I think that Adam and Eve are not so much about the origin of biological homo sapiens, but they might have a lot to do with the origin of civilizations and nations across the globe. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I'm with and, you. Uh, the other thing that becomes really interesting, too, is that because they're interbreeding all this much outside, the chances are that even though all those people across the globe, you know, are our ancestors, the vast majority of them don't give us any DNA. Right. Isn't that wild? It is. And so uh, you can kind of imagine the simulation here with Adam and Eve and, you know, kind of everyone descending from them. And I don't put the people they're interbreeding with in here, but every now and then you'll see a person here that um, actually just has one parent and that's because the other parent comes from outside the garden. And I'm kind of coloring them here by, um, how much of Adam and Eve's DNA they have. And pretty quickly in this particular simulation, um, pretty quickly you end up in a situation where actually all their descendants don't have any DNA. And I get the graph, I get the graph, but at what point then do we see the last genetic descendant of Adam and Eve? Not the genealogical, because obviously we're all ge geological, genealogical descendants of Adam and Eve, you say, the whole human races. But when was the last, I mean, is this like, 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, do you think? It's hard to say um, mm. because there's, it's going to depend on a lot of details that we don't have. And, yeah. um, and you know, maybe, you know, Adam and Eve were the lottery winners, right? It's kind of like, mm. um, it's kind of like a lottery. Like there are people who are going to give us DNA from the past, but they, they're kind of like a lottery, lottery winners. They're not actually, um, they're not common. So we obviously got our DNA from some people in the past. Yeah. Maybe we got some DNA from Adam and Eve, but most likely not. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got it from other people. So most of our DNA, for sure, comes from people outside the garden. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a chance, but there's really no way to identify which of that DNA was theirs or not. Right. Okay. It's kind of like a drop of water in the ocean. If I put a drop of water in the ocean, stir it up a bit, and you kind of take a cup of water out of the ocean, well, did you get any of the water from that drop? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, I mean, maybe, um, how do you know, how do you prove it? That's almost impossible, right? Okay. All right. So I mean, what you end up with then is a situation where you're having two stories that fit together, describing the same reality. So you have like Genesis, we have the garden, it talks about the fall. 
Um, and, and that's like this key theological backdrop drop. In um, Islam, uh, I, read, I learned from reading Shoaib's book that a key part of it is actually the de novo creation of Adam and Eve. And, and largely because of this, I was able to show something that surprised a lot of people. A lot of people thought if common descent is true, then Adam and Eve cannot be de novo created. And yeah, so, exactly. This is the key. This is the key uh, novelty, if I can use that word, of your uh, hypothesis, is is that the historical Adam and Eve could well have existed, and you have uh, the the standard scientific count of evolution. Both. Exactly. So people thought they were in conflict, and there was a tension. I'm just saying. Well, actually, science can't tell us about the novo, like the one-off creation of the novo, of uh, uh, you know, the novo Adam and Eve. The same way you can't tell us about Jesus turning water to wine. I mean, that's just not something that science... Oh, it can't tell us about Jesus' virgin birth. But that's a belief, by the way, is held by Muslims and Christians, that Jesus was conceived uh, of, a virg of the Virgin Mary without, obviously, the the, uh, uh, the involvement of Joseph. And that, of course, scientifically, you wouldn't be able to verify or not. It's simply it's a miracle. It's a supernatural event. Exactly. And so why people thought they were in conflict is really... It's a real puzzle when you see it, because there is no conflict. But people were convinced that... There's a conflict. Mm -hmm. And so what Shoaib calls this is something called atom exceptionalism. Yes. And what he means is that evolution is true, and that's how everything gave, gave rise, including biological humans and all that. But the yeah. exception is Adam and Eve. And so they yeah. were created de novo. And can, I, what, can I just uh, take the liberty of that? Just, I'm, look, I'm looking at this is the book where you're referring to, Shoaib's book, who is actually a mutual friend of ours, but he's a, also, a, a, like you, a scientist. And on page 112, he actually uh, defines Adam exceptionalism himself. Adamic exceptionalism is the idea of Adam being an exception, of course, is the idea that non humans and humans are the product of evolution, but only Adam is an exception to that process. And then in parenthesis, which then entails that Adam is not considered to be the first human. Entails that Adam is not considered to be uh, to be the uh, the first. Well, I would press on that with Shoaib too. I'm writing a review of his book. I would say it all gets down to what you mean by human. So um, human is not a term that is actually well-defined within science. And um, it really comes down to what we mean by human. Right. This is an extremely important question because there's a theological understanding, there's a, a, a materialist understanding, a scientific understanding. There are different conceptions, paradigms. Yeah, and one way theologians have understood the meaning of human is Adam and even their descendants, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if that's the way you understand, that's how you're defining human, well, then Adam and Eve are the first humans. The others might be biologically compatible, entirely human from a scientific point of view, there wouldn't be a reason to call it bestiality or whatever, but they're not the humans by that theological definition, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's flexibility there and, and uh, how to think about that theologically. So maybe they are the first humans, but the key point is, is that when their lineage starts to interbreed with these people outside, well, then they're also a product of evolution. They're a product of Adam and Eve and of evolution, right? There's another category called human exceptionalism. I'm not going to go, but just for the record, is Islamically, uh, people, uh, Sheikh Yasser Qadi, I think, is, is uh, associated with that. He's also an American uh, scholar. He's not, he's not a scientist, he's a theologian. The idea that, yes, evolution of the animal kingdom, not a problem. The exception is humanity as such. So it's not Adamic exceptionalism. Human beings are all uh, de novo, as you put it at the very beginning, created miraculously by God, and we're all descended from them only. So that's a slightly different as a variant on the 
Yeah, so there's so this is once again, this is where I think that there's a lot of opportunity right now in the Islamic conversation to kind of start working this out. So what Shoaib is doing, and he does really expertly, mm. is kind of give kind of a backwards looking explanation of different positions. Uh, like, I mean by backwards, not backwards thought, but like historical look at how different Muslims have thought about this. Okay. But now kind of looking forward, um, I think that we do need to start thinking about a bit more precision in some of this stuff and what we really mean. And most people I would say um, didn't realize that human is a multivalent ambiguous term, particularly in science. Yes. So you can't actually go to a scientist and ask them when did humanity begin and get a straight answer from them that's based on data. Right. And the reason why is that um, well, science doesn't tell us what human is. I mean, we can talk about when our species arise, sort of, but we don't even really have a good definition of our species. Yeah. And is that really the right way to define human? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe not, right? Or we can talk about approximately when our genus arises, like the homo genus. Um, but is that really how to define human? And we don't even have a very good definition of that either. I mean, whatever, whatever definition you have is gonna have a pretty dramatic impact on the answer you get from science. Yeah, I mean, it is um, uh, that Christianity has the idea of God breathing His Spirit, His Roch, into into the human being, whether uh, you know as a baby in the womb or or um, the original um, Adamic creation. And scientifically, you can say, well, when was the first? You know, when did the first human being understood as someone who has the spirit breathed into? But when did that arise? I mean, it's not a question that can be answered because. It's a theological question, I suppose. Uh, it's not a materialist scientific one in the way science is understood. Yeah, it's not an empirical question in the way that science can really go after. I mean, maybe there is a material component, who knows, but it's not like the theological position is committed to a particular, mm. you know, material theory of this. It's just not. Um, exactly. And uh, and there's, there's just a lot more flexibility than people thought because these ideas are not in conflict. But I think the key thing that I think, you know, if we're gonna take Shoei's book, I mean, so I learned a lot from reading his book. I didn't understand why and what would be important to Muslims until I read his book a lot more clearly. And I know there's parts that are up to debate. We can talk about that too. If it's true that what's really important to Muslims is that Adam and Eve were de novo created because of particular texts and the hadiths and so on and so forth, and that, that we all descend from them. Um, and incidentally, the the hadiths that, uh, that Shoei points to are echoing something very similar to the doctrine of monogenesis. It's, it was really um, a statement against racism and the idea that God might've made different races across the globe and in, in very different you know, uh, stations um, and, and, and roles. And it was used to justify colonialism. And mm -hmm. uh, there's this Hadith that actually kind of articulates what's in the doctrine of monogenesis in the, in the Catholic church too, basically saying, uh, kind of independently that, you know, we all descend from Adam and Eve, so we have all equal rights and dignity. We're all sons and daughters of Adam, we're all sons of Adam, as the Quran says. Yeah, Yeah, and so that's that's the critical, that turns, those are the two things that are critical. What this really shows is that those affirmations are not actually in conflict with evolution being entirely true. You just have to have an exception for Adam, and there's no problem with that exception because evolution doesn't give us the whole story. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is, uh, obviously, some, some Muslims, some Christians, <coughs> 
I can say we believe in human exceptionalism. So, you know, yeah, you can believe all the animals are great. It's human beings are the exception in that they were created miraculously by God. And that's probably the, the most common view amongst Muslims in their understanding of the Quran. But I'm not, I don't want to get into exegesis of the Quran here because I'm much more interested uh, for this particular. Well, yeah, but I mean, then I think in, the question, the and this is what Shoeb is even asking theologians right now. The question yeah. is still right there. Okay, fine. If that's what you believe, what do you mean by human exactly? Mm -hmm. And can you define human in a way that, um, isn't going to be appealing to like modern scientific knowledge that they didn't have available to them as they were kind of defining this, these doctrines, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't say, I think, in a defensible way, I mean, people will say it, but I don't think you can say, well, human is homo sapien. That's our species. I mean, that, that's really hard to, to justify. I mean, even scientists don't have a good handle on how to define homo sapien right now. Mm-hmm. And it is a pretty, it's a very recent term <laughs> that comes up and it's highly scientized and it's ambiguous. Is that really what you mean? Is that what they really meant? That's hard. That's hard for me to swallow. Right? It's, it's, the term itself. I mean, I'm being a bit pedantic here, but the etymology of the words homo sapien, the sapien is um, wisdom. It's, it's, a, it's a wise, it's a wise person. Is it? It's a, it's a, it's a a, a human being who has wisdom. Um, so there's a sense that we're different from animals because we have rationality, we think. Uh, I, I'm not saying this is a, a serious contribution to your question, by the way. I'm just saying that the etymology of the word, that's all. Yeah, so you could you could say things like that. You could say, well, what we mean is like the very first rational souls, right? Yeah. Um, or came from Adam and Eve. But then there's, I think, counterexamples to that. Um, because don't, don't angels have rationality? Of course. Yeah, of course they do. And didn't they exist before Adam and Eve? Yeah, of course they did. Mm, mm, mm. So it's not saying that all rational souls come from Adam and Eve. I mean, so there's gotta be something else joined. So there's all these counterexamples, and uh, you can you can eventually construct, you know, a, you know, a pretty complex statement that can somehow kind of exclude this, but it's not easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then, but then once you've constructed it, how do you justify it? That might be impossible. <laughs> I think, I mean, speaking as a layman, I, I mean, I'm obviously not a scientist, so I have no scientific qualifications whatsoever. It strikes me uh, to be a human is much more than just to be a an outcome of material processes that we do possess souls or spirits, which, uh, which transcend our, our death. Uh, and, and that we are, um, created by God. Um, now, th th those statements are theological and so on, but if science can't deal with that, that's, that says to me that science is very limited in understanding what it is to be human, and we need to look elsewhere for actual information, evidence for what it is to be human, um, not, not empirical scientific evidence, but factual statements which are nevertheless true about us in scriptures, the scriptures given to Moses, you know, the Torah. And well, the, I think uh, there can be a dialogue here when we're having the question of what it means to be human. That's a grand question that people have been wondering out for a long time. I think science does bring some important information, but as you said, it's very limited. It doesn't give us yeah, the whole story. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both Christians and Muslims should reject an idea that says evolution is the whole story. That's fine. Um, but you know, even atheists should reject the idea that evolution is the whole story. I mean, it's it's a theory of biological origins. It does not tell us everything that's important that we want to know. Right. And there are uh and, and so I think there's something legitimate in it. We should hear what it has to say. 
Mm. Um, you know, scientists in general are not lying to us. Um, it's not a grand deception. There's some legitimacy there, even if it's not the whole story, and even if it's overstated at times. But, that, but that's the problem, is it not? I mean, although I agree with you, I mean, there are scientists, I don't mind mentioning names because everyone knows, but, you know, Richard Dawkins, famously in England, uh, you know, who will tell you as scientists that, that, that their understanding of the universe, that science necessitates atheism. Uh, and now I know you don't believe that. I don't believe that. E even as a non-scientist, I can see philosophy. It's not about I don't believe it. I think most scientists think it's absurd. absurd. I yeah. mean, like, like most, I mean, most philosophers, I mean, like, it's like, these are just like, that's an absurd claim. <laughs> that's like disputable on every level. And, you know, Dawkins is a famous, important person. It's important to recognize, though, he's, his, his main uh, role has been to be a proponent of atheism, not a proponent of science. And, you know, to the extent, oh, hold on a second, I gotta make sure I'm plugged in here. I'm not for some reason. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can see and hear you clearly, Joshua. There we go, all right, sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, yeah. There was no break this time, by the way, I can still see you, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, that's, uh, he, he's, He's really been a, a proponent of atheism more than a proponent of science. I mean, he's done some great science education stuff, but he's been mainly focused on, you know, advancing evolution. Yeah. I'm sorry, advancing atheism. And when it comes to this choice between saying, does evolution demand atheism? Of course it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Obviously so. <laughs> and, uh, and for him to claim that, that's just kind of showing where his main loyalty lies. It's really to atheism, not to science. Wow. Okay. okay. And so, I mean, so as, as a Christian or as a Muslim listening to that, I think you should just chuckle and say, that's, that's, I mean, there are very smart atheists saying smart things and Dawkins says smart things at times, but that's uh, Dawkins saying something that's purely absurd. Why is an atheist saying something that ridiculous? But you that's quite, what our you response should, would be. Yeah, you said quite interesting that most scientists don't agree with Dawkins. So it's important I to have that. I most atheist scientists don't agree with <laughs> okay. um, I mean, they've done surveys on this and it's generally thought to be, uh, you know, you know, atheists, um, to, to put this sympathetically, I think atheists have kind of had a lot of persecution at times. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of uh, the reasons why Dawkins uh, had an impact is because he kind of created an opportunity for more confident sort of atheism to arise that wasn't uh, quite so persecuted. That was something that was really important to them. Mm. Now, I, I'm not an atheist and I disagree with it, but I, I'm also not threatened by confidence atheists. I think, uh, I mean, I, I don't want them to be, you know, uh, you know, persecuted over this stuff. I mean, no, there's a lot of things that people are wrong about it. They haven't what? been persecuted in, in Europe for a very, very, very long time, I must say. Maybe in parts of uh, America, like you mentioned the uh, the monkey trial and so on, maybe they, they were, but not, um, not really in, in Europe. For, for yeah, and so he kind of, and a lot of atheists um, were kind of afraid to be publicly atheists, and Dawkins uh, made it okay to be publicly atheist. Okay. That was kind of like um, maybe about 20, 25 years ago when a lot of that happened, but mm. but more recently, like over the last 10 years, uh, you know, even atheists have kind of said, well, maybe that was for one time, but we're in a different stage now, <laughs> at least in the Western world. Yeah. Um, maybe that's still needed in the Islamic world, I don't know, but um, but in the but in the in the Western world, you know, we need we need to have like a more um, uh, we, we need to be more focused on things like advancing science and building bridges 
<laughs> true, um, true. and serving, finding ways to serve the common good together. So I think I think that that's that's just kind of where things are right now with most atheists. Like I'm I'm at a secular institution. I'm not at a Christian institution, and you know my atheist colleagues have been very supportive of this work because it's good science, and they see that it serves society. And um, you know that's the opportunity uh, that's there. I mean, we don't actually have to have kind of like our own little enclave in a corner where there's just the people who agree with us, mm -hmm. and we kind of adopt some weird version of the science. We can actually go along with mainstream science, but still hold to our beliefs and talk about them in a way that makes sense alongside it. Mm. Okay, cool. Okay, um, pop your, your book on the uh, your books. Here we go. Yeah, so one of the things that's been cool about this is that it's provoked a lot of conversation, which is, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful and grateful for. So there's several books here I'm just putting down uh, that I've engaged with in various ways. So if you, uh, this book by John Garvey is out in the UK. Uh, he's a great person to have on sometime to discuss if you want to. He gets a lot more into the exegesis of it. Andrew Loke, who is a, um, who, who's an Asian philosopher out in um, Hong Kong, has done some really excellent work here. Bill Craig um, wrote a book along these lines. And of course, there's Shoei, too. And there's also reasons to believe. There's also been other books that have, have come out since and been engaging with this. So there's been a real larger conversation forming. And it's really just been growing a lot. Mm. So here, I mean, I think we got through a lot of this. I mean, I'm curious if there's any other questions that might be coming up from you or anyone else. Well, no, I, I, I very much do about the, uh, the the whole thing about people outside of the garden, this whole uh, uh, story of in Genesis chapter 4. I really would like to look, look at a little bit about that if you're comfortable with that yeah sure let's go for it um okay uh let me just uh remove that um so um well do you want to do you want to talk about it or should, i mean you or, or should, do you want to talk about oh, I no, go ahead and ask your question i don't know what the question um, is exactly. no, the, the, okay well, what we have in, in genesis uh is the we have two creation stories but i'm i'm, I'm not gonna i'm gonna ignore the fact that there are two of them but there's a story of cain and abel in chapter four this is the son of the two sons of adam literally of adam, adam and eve and famously of course um Cain uh, kills uh, Abel for various reasons. We don't, we don't need to go, go into that. And, and, but then we have um, God punishing Cain for his murder. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, whoever kills... Uh, so Cain it, it, it kills Abel, as we've just said. And then God, uh, in verse 14, says... Um, just reading uh, from the NIV here uh, sorry cain says to the lord ha having been promised punishment by god my punishment is more than i can bear today you are driving me from the land because god banishes him from eden and i will be hidden from your presence and i will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me okay so remember you've got adam and eve cain and abel this is what we've been told about in the story so forth so suddenly god says to cain uh, or, or the, Cain says to God, whoever whoever finds me will kill me. And then God says to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And I like a little footnote here. I'm reading from the, um, the New International Version, the NIV study Bible. It's probably the most popular um english translation and commentary in the united states um and it says the, the note here at the bottom to nod in the land of nod um which means uh, the land of the wanderer the land of a wanderer so it's a wandering land it's not really a like a place with a, a zip code or a postcode um and but what's interesting here uh, um 
these words, according to the NIV commentary, seem to imply the presence of substantial numbers of people outside Cain's immediate family, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, obviously. But perhaps they only anticipate the future rapid growth of the race. That, that, that may be the case. But the point is that other people are assumed to exist. Um, yeah, it goes farther than that, because remember, he goes out there, and then all of a sudden he has a wife. Where did he get his wife from? Well, yes. <laughs> and he builds a city. Well, who inhabits that city? Yep, he, he, he goes off and uh, builds a city as well. Yeah, and then and then another point, just a final point here, which is something you, you bring up. I listened to a podcast where you mentioned this very astute point. In chapter 5 of Genesis, literally a few verses later, we read the following. Now, um, I'm going to read from the... Um, the NRSV. There's a reason for this. This is the, the gold standard of academic translations in biblical scholarships. This is not just any old random translation. And it's, it's typical of English translations. And this matters. Okay. So chapter five, verse one. Um, this is the list of the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. Okay, it's very straightforward, you think. Now, in here, there's a, there's notes at the bottom of uh, this page. So I've highlighted uh, in, there we are, in uh, yellow, I guess. And at the bottom, it says this. It's got to the notes uh, and refers to what the Hebrew actually says. And I'll read now the same passage with the Hebrew word instead, and you'll see the difference. This is the list of the descendants of Adam. When God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. There's no footnote to them. And he blessed them and named them Adam when they were created. So what the translators have done, they've translated the word Adam in Hebrew, in the original language of Genesis, into the English word, humankind and they plural they made it into a plural when god created humankind he made them is the english translation but the original he's, he created adam and he made him in the likeness of god now this may sound really pedantic and uninteresting <laughs> but for you there's there's a really important significant point here to be made isn't there yeah i mean the the word for humanity that's being translated humankind or humanity is just the word adam <laughs> Exactly. And so um, even in Genesis 1, where it says God created humankind in, in his image, that word is Adam. God created Adam in his image, male and female. And that's sometimes called an archetypal reference to all of humanity in the image yeah. of God, right? But the word is just Adam. And, right. then, uh, uh, and then in Genesis 1, you know, it's, it, and it's not just like the English translations. It's also uh, the... The Greek trans translations of the Septuagint. Oh, really? We're doing the same thing too. I didn't know. So, so there's Anthropos uh, is like humanity, but then Adam for for Adam, like the the word, like the name, the proper name Adam. And so it, what it is really kind of enforcing it. What does it mean to be human in this sense? Is to be a descendant of Adam and Eve. Is to be one of Adam's descendants. Mm. Um, and that if that's what we mean, remember I told you like one way theologians have understood. The meaning of human is to be Adam and Eve and their descendants. Right. And it's not actually making any statements about what those people were outside. 
so they could be biological humans. They're not beasts. They're not animals. Uh, that would be a mistake too. This translation creates uh, an artificial, I guess what you're trying to say, this translation in English creates an artificial contradiction between, well, God creates humanity in Genesis 1, but then you've got all these other people knocking around outside. Who are they? But if it's God creating Adam, then there is at least some theoretical space for other people, in inverted commas, to exist because it's not an all-inclusive term, Adam. It, well, there's, okay, so in interpretive history, there's two ways it's been understood. So you talked about how there's two Genesis creation accounts. There's yeah. a debate about how many there are, but it's pretty clear that Genesis 1 is you know, talking about the six days of creation in which, you know, Adam was created um, in the image of God, male and female on day six, right? And then God rested. And then after that, there's Genesis two. And so one of the fundamental questions is what's the relationship between Genesis two? And in Genesis two, you have oh, Genesis one and two. In Genesis two, you have a different story. It's not six days. It says in the day that God created everything, he then kind of created Adam in the, and then placed him in the garden. And then he created Eve out of his side. So what's going on? So there's two primary ways that's really been kind of thought about. One is that uh, these are essentially simultaneously happening and it's kind of like we're reading Genesis, the Genesis one account and then you get to Genesis two and it's going back in time and retelling us a story of what happened on day six. Right, okay. Well, that's yeah. one way to read it. Mm -hmm. um, another way to read it, um, which once again, it appears in interpretive history long before me is ideas that these are sequential, that God creates humanity across the globe. And then later he creates Adam and Eve. Ah, interesting. And then Adam uh, being created and the use in Genesis one is being used anachronistically, meaning that it's talking about God creating humanity, but that's kind of us right now. That's our word for humanity is, mm -hmm. is Adam. I mean, that, that isn't the way how they would have described themselves because Adam didn't exist yet. So it's being used anachronistically mm -hmm. as a backward looking story. But God creates all these humans across the globe, but then he makes Adam and Eve in the garden mm. and they become descendants of everyone. Okay. Um, just a couple so those, of those are two different ways to handle it. Either way it works with what I'm saying, right? Yeah. But the, your, your, your uh, cute observation about the, <laughs> the original word, Adam, rather than humankind, creates that space for you to uh, bring in the scientific account as a parallel to yeah. the, the Adam and Eve. Uh, the argument I make is just that there's nothing in the text um, that rules out interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, just ob obvious questions that Christians and Muslims might, well, especially Christians might want to ask, I guess, is, so these non-Adamic uh, people, were they made in the image of God? So, uh, I mean, first of all, we have to understand what you mean by the image of God, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and there can be, uh, and there's debate about that among Christians. I'm not entirely sure what Muslims think. Um, I think some Muslims have understood the image of God to mean an angel. And then because Adam and Eve are no longer in heaven and they're kicked out, they're no longer in the image of God. So there is a strand of a Muslim thought who doesn't think that anyone now is in the image of God because we're not obviously not angels anymore. No, but I mean, from your point of view, as a Christian, understanding Genesis, is, is do you think, uh, given you have now these two two groups of people, you have the Adamic community, the Covenant community that we're all descended from. You had then you had these pre these other people who are not from Adam. Um, I was wondering about their theological status. Were they made in the image of God? Were they sinless, for example? Or I, I mean, how would one speak about them theologically? 
Yeah. So from my point of view, I'm inclined. I mean, though I, I'm flexible. I mean, I'm not a theologian, mm -hmm. but I'm, I think it's very defensible and sensible to say that they're all an image of God, too. What's important about Adam and Eve isn't that they were the first in the image of God. It never says that. Um, that's not what's the most important about them. It's other things. So I'd say that those people outside the garden, they're in the image of God. God created them in Genesis 1, you know, across mm -hmm. the globe in the image of God. Um, other people take it a different way. Um, so uh, so someone like uh, Andrew Locke would argue that those people outside the garden are like fully human biologically, but they're not in the image of God. Mm. But um, just, and then a person like Bill Craig would say, well, they're not fully human. So Adam and Eve are a lot more ancient. And what he means by that is like having fully rational minds. Um, mm. But but they so they're not fully human and they're not an image of God. So, you know, Andrew would say fully human, but not an image of God. I would say, you know, they're fully human in the image of God. They're just not the descendants of Adam and Eve. And mm. Bill Craig would say not fully human and not an image of God. Because if there was interbreeding, which your your hypothesis obviously suggests, it, it would be it would be curious if Adam and Eve interbred with um, non-human. I don't know how do you put it, but with with, with non-image bearing humanoids. I mean, it, it, theologically, it kind of seems a rather curious hybrid. Well, it, it depends what you mean by the image of yeah. God. So if you mean like to be fully human is to be in the image of God, well, then that that's a little bit uncomfortable, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, the way how Bill Craig would handle that is by saying that it was just a product of the fallen world. It was sin. It wasn't what God intended. It just happened if that happened, mm -hmm. right? What um, Andrew is doing is something different. He's saying that, well, actually, God intended for them to interbreed. It wasn't a problem. And they were fully human. They weren't animals. But uh, they they weren't maybe um, in, in the image of God. But the image of God can mean a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Um you know, it could be just a, they didn't have the same calling as Adam and Eve's descendants. That's a vocational yeah. understanding in the image of God. So God had a different calling for them and, and it was intended for them to interbreed. So it wasn't like bestiality. That's the wrong way to think or to say that they're less human, but it's that they just weren't part of, um, you know, uh, you know, this particular covenantal community that God had actually kind of given the authority to represent him in the world. Hmm. And, and lastly, uh, sort of an obvious point also the, the human beings as we, uh, today presumably we are the out the genealogical outworkings of the intermingling of both groups of people the, the, the those that just the, the the genealogical descendants of adam and eve and those who are the descendants yeah. of these yeah um but in terms of the unity of humanity we, we, we seem to be made up of different uh, origins we have what one from adam and eve and another from another another group of beings uh, but the, the, the we're not homogenous. We don't come. We're not like one being. We are composite from two different kinds of beings that came into existence in two different ways. With that, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Well, like I said, it really helps that in both. I mean, like in kind of like this, you know, these religious traditions. There's been a lot of discussion about interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others. Yeah. So that's never really been something that's been considered heretical. Mm. Or it's certainly not in conflict with any text, and a lot of the text suggests it. Yeah. Um, and and you know, we we often come from multiple sources, you know, but it has to do with the salient part for the story has to come from Adam and Eve, and and I think that that does mm. um, for the theological story for what's been trying and what God's trying to tell us through that theological story.
for you speaking for you as a christian now i mean is your position that there was an historic literal original parents that we had adam and eve well i'd say that that's how most people in genesis have read it and science doesn't really counter it and so i'm kind of inclined to affirm that uh, right. for those reasons you know um you know if there was a conflict with science i guess we could talk about it um and if you reject christianity I mean, that's a good reason to reject Adam and Eve too, or I mean, if you reject, if you reject you know, Islam, that's a good reason to maybe question it. Mm -hmm. um, but I am a Christian and I trust what scripture says. And you know, mm -hmm. and that's how most people have read it. And I, I'd probably go, I mean, I, I kind of tend towards a more traditional reading unless there's a good reason not to. And I haven't heard a good reason not to yet. Yeah, certainly the New Testament writers in the gospels and Paul and so on certainly assume the existence of Adam and Paul yeah. develops a whole theology out of it. The second Adam, for example, it's not a, it's not just a, a, a marginal kind of metaphor it's central to his theological anthropology yeah so i mean there was a lot of christians that you know because of this threat from science and you know uh, felt like they had to kind of modify these things um mm. and there's a little bit of that in islam too but you know i i guess we should only modify those things if i mean we, we can have the discussion if we should modify it, if there actually is a conflict right yeah but there isn't a conflict. So why is that even the discussion? Like, why would that be a good idea? And I haven't heard a really good re response to that yet. Okay. Uh, I said at the beginning, I was going to read some uh, this book, Islam and the Destiny of Man by Guy Eaton. He was an English writer, a Muslim convert. He was a diplomat, not a scientist, but nevertheless, he knew a lot about Islam. And, and it's, it's just on page, um, chapter 10. He, he briefly addresses this. And I'm not in any way suggesting what he's saying is the definitive official Islamic response to this. I'm only quoting it because I'm familiar with this work and I find his comments interesting, but they're not scientific. So please don't get that. And they're not meant to be definitive. I just find him an interesting writer. He says, um, Christians have long debated as to whether the biblical account of our human origins is to be taken literally or allegorically. This debate is not foreign to Islam in relation to the Quran, but on the whole, Muslims have been less troubled by the question, he says, knowing if they are wise, that both points of view may lie safely within the great circle of truth. The Quran describes the Adamic creation and the fall of the first couple. And for the Muslim, the Quran is infallibly true. Whether this truth is factual in the historical sense or allegorical is a matter of perspective and does not affect its substance. The distinction is less sharp than it appears to the distinction is less sharp than it appears to the Western mind, since both historical fact and allegory are among the tools of God. He teaches us and informs us through the Quran, as also through facts, in inverted commas there, as he does in the manner best adapted to our needs, our mode of understanding uh, and our intellectual and imaginative capacity. So the Quranic account of the creation of Adam serves the divine purpose, and there is no occasion here for the breaking breaking heads in argument. What matters is the meaning transferred from that which infinitely transcends us to the human mind with all its limitations, surely a miraculous transference. This meaning relates not only to an event remote in time, but also to ourselves, for we, are, for we are all the children of Adam, forged from one soul. That is our identity, fit to be entered on our passports, end quote. Now, that's quite, 
you know, uh, quite poetical. Uh, and I just wanted to just put that in a slightly different take on it. So he is comfortable with different interpretations and readings of the Quranic statements. That may not be something that many Muslims are comfortable with. They may have a, a strictly literal understanding, and I certainly respect that. But nevertheless, there is that also, you know, bo both the interpretations, the so-called allegorical and the literal, the historical, may, he, he thinks, lie within the grand circle of truth. Um, you know, but that, that, that's his take. I just thought I'd mention it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly going to be Muslims that take a view like that. Um, but on a factual point, he kind of makes a claim about Islam as a whole not really being as troubled by this issue. I don't actually think that that's accurate. I think that that just fails on evidence. I think there's been a lot of conflict about evolution within the Islamic world. I mean, I'm not saying that um, as a dig. I mean, it's true there's been a lot of conflict about evolution in the Christian world, too. I mean... <laughs> This has been a major point of conflict. Um, and so while some Muslims have been able to take his view, quite a, lar a lot have not and have seen a lot of reason to have difficulty with evolution. It's still, uh, it's still a, a, a forbidden topic in many Muslim contexts because of mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And that, that's actually why I think Shoaib's work is so important because it's not just a poetical analysis. He's really doing a deep engagement and really taking seriously uh, the theological claims of Islam and asking, you know, is that really in conflict? And, and he would actually argue that the view of taking, well, he does argue that saying Adam and Eve are just purely allegorical is not consistent with a faithful reading of the Quran and Islam, um, that you really have to have at least Adam exceptionalism is what he would say. Mm. Now, no, maybe I'm, he's I'm, wrong or not. Um, that, that's up for debate. But I think that that's I think um, I think that's actually really moving the conversation forward by actually helping that conversation develop about what actually is important, and we can have that conversation even if we're not sure if evolution's true yet. Mm -hmm. I, th I think one of the takeaways uh, for me from from this, from your, your, what you're presenting, is that scientifically, in terms of genealogy or, or even in terms of genetics, we, th there is no uh, block. There's no absolutely you can't do it. You can if you wish, uh, believe in historic Adam and Eve, as indeed you you, you do too. Um, and that, that things are not quite what they seem to the popular mind in terms of what science says. Uh, it, it doesn't quite adjudicate in this black and white way. Yeah, and I think that's an opportunity. I mean, it's an opportunity to find a more confident sort of faith that isn't, once again, kind of reactive and being mm -hmm. opposed to things that we don't need to be opposed to. It could be more open and exploring. Okay, my final question, if I may, then, is about the reception of your work um, in the in the Christian community in America. And I, I know, you know, there are many, many conservative Christians in the United States, uh, millions. <laughs> um, but how has your work been received? Are, are people appreciating the nuance that you're bringing to it, and have they been sympathetic, or what's been your experience? Yeah, I think. In general, people have been very sympathetic. I think, I mean, I'm still being asked to speak about it pretty regularly, uh, wow. like in all sorts of contexts from Christian schools to secular schools, um, you know, to, to to Muslim contexts all over. And I think I'd say the most common response that I observe in people is like a sense of relief, mm -hmm. like the sense of like, oh, that they were kind of carrying this burden around. And now this right. just makes the burden a lot lighter. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Um, in terms of like the more academic responses, I mean, the science has been really well received. Like, I mean, I, I, I don't really, I'm not really aware of any real serious debate about the scientific claims that I've made. Um, and, uh, and, you know, different people are taking it up and adjusting the theology in a way that makes sense for them. 
Mm -hmm. uh, some people still don't like it, but a lot of those people are people who make their living in Origins, and that's not that surprising. You know, if you if your job is to be a young Earth creationist or an evolutionary creationist or what have you, um, you know, it's going to be very hard for you to change your mind. <laughs> you know, your if your living depends on your position, it's going to be really it's, it's just very hard for people to to adjust. But that's that's expected and normal. Um, what I found though is that even young Earth creationists—I mean, young Earth creationists are, are like, a, like you know, probably the more conservative or fundamentalist group, right? In general, um, while many of the leaders have had an issue with what I'm saying, many of like the rank and file young Earth creationists have really responded well to it and really liked it. And they're not sure about evolution, but my point has never been to show that evolution is true. What this does is it really takes away a barrier. So they're like, oh, well, okay, if evolution is true, I think what you're saying makes really a lot of sense and it wouldn't mm -hmm. be really that much of a threat. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, over the last you know, four or five years, I think that there's been a real <clears throat> diffusing of that sort of anxiety really across the spectrum. And that's good news. Because this in America, the, the conflict over this has been quite intense, uh, you know, famously with trials and media show trials and so on. But it would seem that you are providing a hypothesis which can diffuse that and resolve it for many people. Yeah. So what it means is like for Christian institutions that are trying to like clarify what they believe and what they want their employees to believe and things like that, mm. um, they can say things like, you know, we think it's important for you to from historical atom or even a historical mm. atom that's de novo created or even, mm. you know, um, ancestors of all of us. And they're not they shouldn't be taken as being anti-science and they can't really interpret that to mean that evolution is false. Mm, so right. that's, that's important. So I think it's often important for religious organizations to make statements about what they think is important to believe. Mm -hmm. And those should be put in theological language. And I think it's helpful to know that those things don't actually rule out evolution. <laughs> And, you know, so maybe there are certain ways of taking hold of evolution that are in conflict with their beliefs, but certain ways that are not. Right. So some institutions, for example, might have a problem with the Christians saying, I'm from evolution and I don't think Adam and Eve are real. Right. That might be a problem in some denominations or contexts, right? Um, but it shouldn't be a problem to say, you know, well, I think Adam and Eve are real and that evolution is true too. Mm. That shouldn't be a problem. Um, and uh, in a lot more places, that's just becoming a lot more clear that that's the case. Does that make sense? It does. And just for last quick, quick question about, obviously, we've got your book, but are there any other online resources that people can access? Well, I know there are. <laughs> this is your cue to uh, your, your, your website. Um, could, could you tell us yeah, if you go to Peaceful Science, uh, it's yep. peacefulscience.org. I'll link to in the description below. It's rather good. Yeah. Yeah, join our mailing list. Uh, you won't get a lot of emails from us, but there's a lot of great articles there from a lot of people, not just me, um, you know, explaining the science more, um, kind of reacting to different things. And hey, if you're a, if you have an article you'd like to submit to us, uh, send it to us. Maybe we'll be able to uh, kind of introduce people to the way you're thinking about some of this too. Yeah, I mean, uh, are you um, with Dr. Shoaib? Uh, an article by him hopefully might appear. Unless oh, I invited him. He said he's working on one. We'll see. <laughs> oh, really? Good. Because I think it'd be really amazing uh, if, if he uh, contributed an article. Well, thank you um, very much indeed, Joshua, for your time. I appreciate your work and, and you, you have uh, a lot of uh, commitments. And uh, uh, it's been absolutely fascinating, a, a completely paradigm shifting uh, discourse that you've introduced here and I'll be very interested to see how it pans out and what Muslims also in the comments make of, of your uh, your perspectives and the science particularly the science that you uh, talk about I think that's particularly of interest to Muslims as well so thank you very much indeed for your time yeah thanks a lot for thanks for having me too take care